3: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of After Work Drinks with. This week we are so excited about who we're talking to and Grace probably more than everyone. <laughs> yes,
0: we actually kind of can't believe this is happening, but this week we are very thrilled to be talking to the iconic feminist author Naomi Wolf. Her seminal book The Beauty Myth literally changed my life and then I threw it at Izzy's head and then it changed her life too. Um, And this year is the 30th anniversary. Uh, So we reached out to Naomi and by a massive stroke of luck, she said yes.
3: You may have heard us talk about the beauty myth in the past, Grace, just, you know, every five minutes and also on a previous interview episode, which is one of our most listened yet with AWD favorite Florence Given, Um, that Naomi Wolf is her biggest inspiration and it inspired her book, Women Don't Know You Pretty. During our chat, we talked to Naomi about how beauty standards oppress women, how women are pressured to be compliant and likable, and how that becomes kind of a mass social grooming, how to figure out what you genuinely like versus what the patriarchy teaches you to like, and how she's reframing the beauty myth in an era of social media and internet porn.
0: Naomi has since become a cultural and political commentator, writing for The Guardian, The New Republic, and The Huffington Post, and is the author of eight best best-selling books, including her latest outrages sex censorship and the criminalization of love which tracks the life of an unsung hero of the 19th century gay rights movement john addington simmons
3: just a quick heads up that naomi briefly discusses the topic of sexual assault during our conversation so if you want to skip over that section it starts at the 20 minute mark and lasts for two minutes so if you jump from 20 to 22 you will miss that entirely As always, if you loved this episode, which we know you will, please rate, review, and subscribe, and we will see you again on Wednesday. See you on Wednesday. Bye. Bye.
1: Sorry, ladies, I'm so like bad at some of these platforms. No, I don't know silly t- yeah, twists. No. But I'm so glad to see you both. Thank you so much. I'm at my mom's house in Oregon checking in on her and the coronavirus, and I uh, had trouble getting this figured out. But we're talking to each other, so alright. <laughs> we got we're there. so
0: excited to talk to you. Thank you so much I've... for coming on. I'm so excited. Your book, The Beauty Myth, I don't want to fangirl, but I cannot overstate the impact that it had on me when I read it last year. I was sitting on the tube in London and I just wanted to walk around and, like, smack every woman in my (laughs) carriage over the head with it because it's just so phenomenal and it's, like, fundamentally changed the way that I see and understand other women and myself. And I was just wondering
1: if you would mind trying to kind of condense what you consider the beauty myth to be about for someone who hasn't read it. That is a great question. And I'm so glad that it had that, um, you know, performed that service for you. That's really how I wrote it. And I was 26 when I wrote it. So uh, I was new at sort of communicating anything and I really just wanted exactly what you described. I wanted women to, my age, really, I was thinking about women my age to be able to, use it as a tool to go, you know what? Fuck you. That's bullshit. I reject it. i mean just that like hitting people over the head, you know, metaphor is so great. Um, so for people who haven't read it, the beauty myth is an analysis of the beauty industry and what I call the beauty industrial complex, which at that, the time I wrote it in the early nineties was Pretty much unquestioned i mean the second wave feminists had analyzed and deconstructed beauty for their generation but a lot of their analysis was lost so i came of age in a generation of young women who were like desperately dieting very high levels i mean they're still constant but my my generation was like besieged with anorexia and bulimia you know we were given the message that these completely unattainable ideals we saw in magazines Um, that were totally airbrushed. And this was before computer technology, but, you know, completely manipulated images were reality and that we weren't worthy as women if we didn't live up to them. And I was especially interested in the thinness of the ideal because I had been anorexic when I was 12. And um, I, I remembered, you know, how when you're trying to survive on 1,200 calories a day or less, it affects your mind, right? It affects what you can think about, how freely you can think. It affects your energy levels. And so I had actually been, um, I wrote it when I was a graduate student at Oxford, uh, and I had been studying 19th century fiction. And I saw that in the 19th century, when the first wave of feminists were getting, were mobilizing for the first time in history to get basic civil rights like access to an education or the right to own their own money or the right to have custody of their children in a divorce um, and not have them taken away from them completely, this ideal of a tiny, silent, doll-like beauty uh, manifested. And I thought that's really interesting. It's a backlash. And then I saw the same thing happening um, in, in our in our period i mean i I saw it also in the first wave of feminism when twiggy appeared the very same year that uh the birth control pill appeared so this completely boyish you know no breasts no curves uh, super thin ideal for the first time historically like women ideals of beauty had never looked like that until women could control their reproduction and then it was like okay you guys have this big leap forward we're going to give you an ideal to completely preoccupy and subdue you um, to counterbalance that and then i just moved that thesis into the the moment i was writing in and it occurred to me that you know my generation was could have been the most radical disruptive generation of young women ever to walk the planet because we inherited the gains of second wave feminism right we were you know, some of the first to be in those universities and some of the first to be in those jobs, and we were completely obsessed with, you know, how many calories did I eat today? How many times did I run around the track? You know, how what is my size? Um, terrified of aging, uh, and and insecure in these very very basic ways. And I realized this is a political backlash. It's it's not about beauty ideals. It's about a new ideology to contain and undermine the incredible strength that was represented the potential of feminism of a second wave of a third wave of feminism. So that's the beauty myth.
3: Yeah. And I love, because it actually finally resonated with me when you literally just said that images of female beauty are used as a political weapon against women's advancement. Like, and we, I think women, until you see it like that until you see it as being a deliberate act (laughs) That's when you you start looking at things really
1: differently? No, I was just going to say, like, with any of these cultural phenomena, there's no smoking gun, right? It's not like there were a group of men in a smoke-filled room saying, you know, let's make this supermodel skinnier and, you know, younger and more Caucasian. But what's really interesting about the beauty myth is you can really tease apart the players right and you can see how market forces determine certain kinds of ideals like um you know when i wrote the book women were terrified of aging as i mentioned terrified and that's like a really deep phenomenological problem for f- female consciousness if you know the more knowledge and experience and power and influence you get over the course of your lifetime the less good you feel, right? The less um, personally powerful you feel, you feel like you're losing something all the time. And women were being told that their wrinkles were lesions and that they had to buy these incredibly expensive face creams that, um, you know, did nothing because nothing penetrates the epidermis, right? It needs FDA approval if it does. So to me, I like analyzed those, those ads, as if they were kind of a cultural product to, to read, and not just an advertisement. And so you saw that if you've got this multi-million-dollar industry making millions and millions of dollars off of women's insecurities about getting older, you know, designed to make women feel like if they don't look like they're nineteen, they're hideous and disgusting and diseased and less than, uh, then those, uh, you know, advertisers are going to have a subtle and not so subtle influence on what age of model you're, you know, the, the producers of images in magazines and on television are going to show. And the same thing with, you know, fashion and the same thing with um, industries like Weight Watchers. Uh, I'm really proud that I was, I think one of the first people systematically to call attention to how dangerous breast implants were at that time that they hadn't, you know, had FDA approval and, I actually intercepted a doctor's um, medical journal that was advertising breast implants to cosmetic surgeons three sets at a time because the surgeons knew they ruptured. The surgeons knew that if you you know put breast implants in someone at that point, it was very likely you'd have to redo the operation. Redo the operation, but women didn't know that, right? The yes, the magazines is. were like, "This is fabulous! You know, new breasts tomorrow, no problem." Um, so, I felt like women were not being told a, a lot of things that were endangering them, but also that were going into kind of constructing what the idea looked like that they were told to kind of swallow whole.
0: Yeah, and I think it's something that me and Izzy have really grappled with because we both worked in magazines. And I think that we, now that we've left and look back, we can see how we contributed to that culture. While at the same time, it was kind of one of the few places where women who wanted to write about culture or art or or things that other publications consider frivolous—it's—it's—it's it's, it's like the women who work there are so are so conditioned to seeing things in the same way and are victims of that mentality to the point where they become perpetuators of it because they're so brainwashed. But
1: what I, it's a horrible cycle. <laughs> it is a horrible cycle, but you say something very profound. Like if I want to write about something that just takes women seriously, it's, it's unlikely that the new Statesman is going to run it, you know, or that um, the New York times opinion page is going to run it. It's much more likely that glamor or Marie Claire or Vogue will run a serious piece about something affecting Women, so you're absolutely right that these are precious spaces, and you know a lot of second wave feminists were like just, you know, turning their their back on women's magazines. I think women's magazines are a very, really powerful agent of kind of stealth feminism. Um, they have a lot of empowering messages about money and about work and about sexuality and relationships. But their advertisers are their advertisers, and they don't want women to get too comfortable. Not buying the latest trends or not worrying so much about if they look their age, <laughs> you know, like there's, um, those are, those are pressures that every, every piece of journalism feels, you know, there isn't a, an area of journalism, you know, you're not going to have in-depth hard hitting reporting on climate change from a publication that most of its advertisers are making fossil fuel burning automobiles that's just real mm-hmm. so I don't want to like judge too critically women who work in those magazines because they don't really have a choice like you would have lost your job if you had said I'm not you know I I'm not gonna run that piece that tells women that they need to you know, worry about their size. Although things have gotten much better, I have to say. Like, even, I'm sorry that you feel guilty. (laughs) (laughs) And and I appreciate your awareness. But I don't think that working in women's magazine is quite the, today, with the complexities and contradictions that you face, I don't think it's quite as evil. And in Mm -hmm. some ways, I think it's a lot better than it was 30 years ago. Um, Because now I do think there's at least a discourse of, it's good to have diverse Role models for appearance and style, and I think there's much more of a sense of, you know, Paris doesn't dictate fashion. Grassroots people on the street, you know, hip hop artists, you know, schoolgirls—like everyone can dictate fashion. Everyone can create their own fashion. And honestly, I think, I think Instagram, I think social media, even though people, you know, are very critical of what it does to women's insecurities, it is pretty radical that anyone can produce really her own magazine right now on Instagram. Anyone can say, you know, this is who I am, or this is what I find beautiful, and I'm just going to put it out there. So I'm just saying, like, I agree that there are compromises, people still have to make in women's magazines, but I think the world of beauty images are a lot, it's a lot more open to critique and reinvention now than it used to be, partly because of, you know, feminism and women like you.
3: And so when you wrote The Beauty Myth, you focused on magazines and billboards and advertising and things that were around at the time, like movies, TV, pornography. Um, but mm-hmm. this was, like you say, a long time before social media. Do you think that platforms like Instagram, which is kind of responsible for both the body body positivity movement, but then also a lot of unrealistic beauty images being circulated, um, do you think it's positively or negatively impacted
1: Feminism. I mean, honestly, that is such a good question. I'm going to say, on balance, positively. Uh, I I do think people are much more sophisticated about the technologies that go into altering an image now. I mean, it's on your phone, right? You know how to use a filter. You know how to turn up brightness. How to get rid of wrinkles. How to whiten teeth. That used to be an arcane priesthood of three photographers. Or you know retouchers you know before this technology. So I I know that there are people who feel like oh Instagram is surrounded by you know surrounds women by unrealistic images, but I think I think everyone takes those images with a huge grain of salt now. You know they know that they're produced um, and manipulated. And I also even though I mean I have to say I've had interns whom I adore. And then I look at their Instagram, and I'm like, "No, you know, you'll never be president with these, you know, with these images in your past. Don't do it." Um, I, you know, I regret that if, if any young women feel like they have to really sexualize themselves beyond their comfort level, I regret that. But I also feel like there are so many images on Instagram and social media generally that look all kinds of ways where people are inventing fashion or saying, I love my body. You know, I'm not going to wait to be told that I love my body or, you know, this is my sexuality. It doesn't fit into any category. And I, and the whole like locus of who's producing images is the people and not these five gatekeepers. Um, So definitely there are new problems with it. But on balance, I think it's pretty extraordinary. And I have to say, your generation, I don't know how old you are, but like women in their 20s and late teens are freer, uh, or more confident about their bodies and about their sexuality than any generation I've spoken to in my 30 years of being a, you know, feminist talking to women my age and younger so i I have to believe that the democratizing nature of social media is, is part of that and also the work that people have done on deconstructing rigid gender and sexuality norms in the last 10 or 15 years these go hand in hand i think
0: something we've talked about in the podcast a lot is the way that um how women look externally is very much linked to behaving in a way that's like palatable and likable and makes people feel comfortable. So we talked last week about the whole resting bitch face phenomenon and this idea that (laughs) women need to perform in a way that makes people feel comfortable in a way that men don't. I was wondering if that's something that you've either experienced in your life or that you're
1: interested in from a writing. Could you tell me more about about what you mean by that. That's really interesting. I think it changes all the time. Yeah. Well, resting, we did a
0: a conversation last week about the word bitch because of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez being amazing. And we talked about how there's this new movement to kind of reclaim what the word bitch means and what does it even mean to be a bitch. And we found an article in the New York Times talking about this idea of resting bitch face where we kind of automatically dislike or think I don't really like her about celebrities that don't smile or tend to have a face Uh, that's downward or um, not a scowl, but isn't a smile and how we, we kind of expect women to be performing in a way that makes them likable and friendly and palatable day to day. And I think likability is something me and Izzy talk about a lot where there's this pressure To be twisting yourself to be the most likable version of yourself in any social situation
3: but if men have a stern face they're um you know they're just men it doesn't mean anything they're just focused or smart or serious yeah or hot
1: absolutely i mean you're talking about something super profound um now and i think that ocasio cortez's challenge of that nameless guy who accosted her is a perfect example of it. But without question, we're expected to perform compliance, you know, and we're expected to perform peacemaking. And we're expected to perform subservience in a million different ways, even now, right? Um, And a lot of people have talked about how when women leaders are assertive, they're uh, assailed for it, just the way you said. I certainly, you know, in my own kind of career, I experienced that all the time. <laughs> um, as a as a young woman, it, it was my experience that, you know, when I would make a declar- declarative statement, if it was firmly held, it would be called controversial. Whereas male peers of mine were just making declarative statements all the time. You know, just whatever they thought. I mean, people... Who, with the exact same background and education that I had, were just pronouncing, 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 pronouncing. And whether you agreed with them or not, they were not called controversial. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to set something on fire as a white man to be <laughs> called controversial, you know? And um, so, yes, I, I, I know what you mean. Uh, I I know it to be true. I think often what I pay attention to a lot is how many ways we're denied agency and leadership. And so, um, you know, so many ways our appearance is used to undermine what we're saying. Uh, Our relationships are used to undermine our agency. I mean, there there are, what interests me is how motivations are ascribed to us. I'm actually writing a book about this right now. um, Kind of. I mean, it's so, so interesting that, you know, when, I finally disclosed in the wake of the Me Too movement, something I'd never talked about in public that I'd been uh, unfortunately a victim of, of rape as a child by a male babysitter, you know, someone called the BBC and said, you're just saying this to get attention like that, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, women's very essence is taken to be there to either placate or, support other people, and they can't just be in their own essence, I think is kind of what we're saying here, right? And it's true, they can't just, like Ocasio-Cortez couldn't just have, she couldn't just walk up the steps without some man twisting her beingness to serve his mood at that moment. You know, when I I disclosed in 2004, and I, I keep going back to sexual violence because I think this is the absolute kind of DNA of what you're describing, and, and also it's what my new book is about but my forthcoming book you know that i just began but there's no place a woman can inhabit her very own life without being subject to being her life being appropriated and misused by a man to serve his own purposes um you know sexual violence is the kind of the ultimate dis- distillation of that but you know, in 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 every moment across the spectrum, you know, you're you're nudged to do that. I think it gets easier as you get older because some people have less interest in <laughs> you know making you comply. I mean, there's such a big kind of um, patriarchal desire to make young women smile at older men, and I think that's just like, this exhausting constant when you're a young woman. But it it, it does kind of have the effect of not letting you just know who you are and focus on your own goals and have your own outcomes. And also it sets you up for victimization. I mean, not to ever blame the victim, but if you're constantly given the message that your job is to not cause a scene, not cause trouble, not make people uncomfortable, it's absolute grooming um, the perfect victim, Uh, the the person who can be raped or who can be molested or discriminated against or beaten um, and the odds are she's not going to make a scene. She's not going to uh, make anyone uncomfortable. So th- where I'm going with this ultimately is I did a talk at the Women of the World Conference in London in March, and I, I talked about combat, and I talked about the fact that women are um, asked to not know how to engage in combat. Uh, And I don't mean violence, you know, obviously I mean violence if you're fighting someone off, who's beating you or wanting to rape you or kill you. But I just mean, we're absolutely trained from birth to not fight back Um, Mm -hmm. and, and to not defend ourselves. And, and even if we let ourselves visualize defending ourselves, we're not taught to aggress. And sometimes aggression is appropriate, you know, and, that guy, that nameless guy who called Ocasio-Cortez a fucking bitch, he didn't expect that she was gonna take the biggest pulpit in the United States or in the world and and call him out and name him. Um, that's a form of aggression, you know, thank God. It's appropriate. It's a form of fighting back. It's a form of saying it isn't you can't fuck with me with impunity. And right now, women have the reputation, after centuries of grooming, millennia of grooming, of being the people Men can fuck with, with impunity. And that is not a deterrent, but I think that it's exciting and healthy. And as a victim or a survivor, I applaud this. I see the health in, in me being willing to integrate the fighter, right? As, as I've done the work on my own victimization, Um, being willing to fight and, and say, you're not going to attack me with impunity. There is going to be a price you pay. You cannot you know, twist my reputation with impunity. You can't touch me with impunity. You can't um, expect to get away with it. If you're doing something that's unjust or violent to me, I think it's a really good, a really necessary thing for, for women as a kind of group of human beings to, to reclaim right now. It's a painful, difficult process, but it's, it's healthier than the way we're conditioned to, um, you know, just close our eyes and hope it's not going to kill us. So
3: you um, mentioned the Me Too movement, which obviously is kind of sparked off this new conversation with women. And I think a lot of women everywhere are reassessing things that happened in their past and realizing things aren't okay and hopefully going forwards won't accept them. Um, What do you think of the feminist movement today and the Me Too movement's as a whole
1: i mean it's fascinating to me that the media so rarely um does a story about how successful feminism is because i've been in this world of feminism in this battle for feminism you know again for 30 years 31 years and it's never been better like it has never been better it's never feminism has never been more diverse. It's never been smarter about organizing. It's never been um, savvier about kind of communications and marketing its messages. And I, I say the plural because a problem for feminism in the seventies and eighties and into the nineties was that it was hegemonic and white and upper middle class and all the things we know are not diverse and tried to speak with one voice, that idea. Um, Feminism today is global. Uh, It's being led by women in the global south, which a lot of people don't realize in the global north. Um, It's innovative. It's, I mean, I can't say enough good things about it. And it got rid of some of the stupidest reflexes that it had had for a couple of decades in my lifetime. It's, it's not, you know, feminism used to be very judgmental sexually and it isn't now that I can see. I mean, there's a sick, messed up, anti-trans turf thing going on in Britain, which is psychotic, but apart from that disgusting little backwater of hatred, um, feminism is much more inclusive sexually than it used to be. Um, It's just better. Uh, I mean, I don't see young, it's it's not the dumb argument it used to be. I don't mean the arguments were dumb, I just mean that, there were stumbling blocks like, you know, men can't be feminists. And so that would rule out half the allies on the planet. And I don't see young people like I have a 20 year old son and a 25 year old daughter. I don't see their friends having the dumb arguments of the eighties and nineties about, well, you know, you don't need feminism or, you know, men can't be feminists or, you know, they're just like allies with each other and thank God, um, and people who think that date rape is cool are not I don't think those young people see the I think they see them as messed up losers. so uh, I think there are many many adva- you know advances obviously not all little networks are the same and I'm uh, you know obviously I know people who are young people who are in a self-selected network of you know privileged access to ideas but I just see so much, like the women who are saying I've had enough. They're not from one background. They're not from one educational experience. They're not from one race. It's, it's absolutely global and that's, and that's as it should be. And and I've had enough is coming in so many different ways. And the last thing I want to say about this riff is that, you know, when I wrote the beauty myth, what I wanted most was just to free up this energy and and creativity that was being bound up in stupid calorie counting and, and you know self-hatred physically. So I think a lot of that energy and creativity has been freed up. And and where I'm going with that is like what 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 you you both have done. You know, when women are not absolutely obsessed about, you know, hating their appearance if they don't look a certain way. And when they're not being hobbled by patriarchal or rigid feminist ideals, they have the energy to open businesses, right? And to like the end of the beauty says don't just hate the media, start your own media. Don't just hate the products that are out there. Start your own business, start your own thing. Don't be reliant on what patriarchy gives you. And so you both have started your own thing, right? You saw a gap, you saw a void in a discussion. You found out all the things you needed to know to start a business. You found your supporters, you found the technology. The internet makes all of that a lot easier now than it used to, but you did it. And, and you know, you didn't listen to the voices that might be in you. I doubt it. I hope not. But that were in women of my generation that would say, well, how, how could you know about technology, little lady? <laughs> you know, you don't know how to make a podcast. <laughs> you know, like. And so to me, that's when you ask, where is feminism? Like I see that, but I don't just see that in, in you with this. I see it all over the world. Like this is the, I promise the last thing I'm going to say about this. There's this amazing startup called PowerToFly.com. fly.com that um, these two amazing women I know started, uh, Malena Berry and Catherine Zaleski. And they created a platform where coders and technologists and women who have basic digital skills all over the world can get onto this platform. And even if they're in the most regressive, repressive patriarchal society, if a coder is sitting in Yemen, Right, she can get on this platform, get a job, and be working for and collaborating with people all over the world, building things digitally. Um, so our developer is in the Philippines, but before we hired her, we talked to women in Jordan and women in Eastern Europe and you know women all over the world, and all of those women are like they learned to code, you know, and now they're developers and and technologists and. As, as many obstacles as they have in their lives, the messages of feminism um, saturated the globe enough in the last 30 years that they didn't sit around believing whatever the dominant culture was telling them about their lives. They went and got their educations. They faced whatever hurdles they had to face and now they're building things. Um, and so I, I've never been more excited. I, I think there are, a few things we need to kind of complete the revolution but there's never been a smarter time for feminism. The
0: thing that we have talked about a lot which you discuss in The Beauty Myth, women spend a lot of time and energy still today on like manicures, pedicures, waxing, hair removal, hair dye, makeup, beauty products. It still takes up a lot of mental energy and it still takes up a lot of the way we spend our money but at the same time I think most women you ask would say, oh, I just do those things because I love them. I just do them because they make me feel great. I don't do them for men. I don't do them for whatever. And it's very hard to separate what you genuinely like from what you've been conditioned to like, because it's like, where does that begin and start? So we just wanted to see if you had an opinion on that in terms of how you unpack what you've been conditioned to want versus what you really want.
1: Um, that's also a great question. And interestingly, I've been asked that question my whole career. Um, so I guess I would kind of go deeper. And if you don't really know what you, whether you really like something or you're responding to external reasons to like something, then the work is on you, right? You have more work to do. In other words, if, if that's a a blurring, you know, if the outside and the inside are so blurred, you know, there's, there's meditation, there's a vision quest. I mean, there's the, the the question is like, where's that point when I want a manicure where 60% it's Cosmo and 40% it's me. Um, The real question is, what more do I need to do? What, what work do I need to do on, on myself in listening to my own voice so that I, I know that everything I want to do is what I actually want to do. I'm sorry, I'm just charging this. And also there are some things that are like professional obligations and that those are sort of different. I mean, you know, as social beings, there are kind of social contracts we make with each other to be dressed and clean and, excuse me, reasonably appropriate for a workplace situation if we ever have that again, which I hope we will. (laughs) Um, And I think men and women and people of all genders face those pressures, you know, between the kind of unsocialized and the socialized. Right. Um, But that's not really what we're talking about. Like, right. We're talking about what are things that I do that if I don't do them, I feel bad about myself. And I guess, again, pushing it kind of to a deeper level, I would hope like the real task is self love, right? The real task is just every single day thinking, I'm so lucky to have this body. I'm so lucky to be born whatever gender I'm born or become, right? I'm so lucky to be alive. I'm so lucky to be able to move and touch people and have a sexuality. I'm so lucky to eat. You know, and and enjoy food or drink and enjoy my friends. Everything else is is extra, right? Everything else is adornment. It's gilding the lily. And really healthy children have that approach to adornment and dress. They think they're perfect as they are. And then when they you know dress up or whatever, it's it's crazy decorative extra. It's it's showcasing the fabulousness of of what they already are. And that's that's what I would wish for all women and all men, you know, and every, I mean, people of every gender.
3: Yeah. Mm. It's also um, hard because yeah, it's like you watch these movies and then you see how women are portrayed on the big screen still to this day and what's supposed to be seen as desirable. And then celebrities kind of adhering to that. But then also as Grace was saying earlier with us working in magazines, they're just part of this patriarchal society as well. But then it's Mm. like, what, at what point Um, do we hold people accountable for projecting onto younger people? Like, you know, Kim Kardashian projecting Mm. herself in a corset. And then Jamila Jamil was saying that she's just part of this society and she's a victim as well. But then I'm not sure where the line is.
1: I mean, I'd like to get, I'd like to drag us all out of those ways of interpreting what other people do. A huge um, trick that patriarchy developed to enslave women was to tell them that whatever, what, what other women did affected them. Right. And I'd love to just burn that idea up. Mm. I mean, if Kim Kardashian wants to wear a corset, she should wear a corset, you know, that's, that's her decision. That's her, whatever went into it. I, I don't think she's necessarily a victim. I mean, we're all victims. Um, on some place in the spectrum but you know it, it what what another woman does doesn't affect you right in in if if you're truly free if you've truly decided to take a free posture in your life then you then no one no one's choices matter but yours right mm-hmm. how how does what another woman says or does or dresses Um, affect you. You're truly the mistress of your own life and your own decisions. So I'd rather encourage, you know, women, especially younger women, because they're the ones who are most like besieged by these things and they haven't had a chance to kind of just be in their own lives for decades and sort of be, you know, at that place of being very comfortable with knowing who they are. But younger women, I would love for them to just be gently having that kind of Buddhist awareness of how they feel and if they feel uncomfortable or angry or resentful or jealous, if they see Kim Kardashian in a corset or some other image, just gently bring their thoughts to themselves and to their own mental processes. Like, what about this bothers me? What what hunger is it revealing me? Why, why do I feel that way? What could I do in my life to make that not matter, right? I mean, usually, look, usually if we're so affected by what other people do, there's something in us that isn't being fed or that we're not feeding ourselves. So I I can't say what it is, right? Only your own discussion with yourself and usually deep discussion like meditation or self-dialogue or self-inquiry reveals what it is. But usually when women are so easily made to feel bad, there's something... You know, unresolved that that they need to heal or address, so they don't feel bad so easily, right? Like, is it sexuality? You know, is it are they not getting paid enough? Are they being bullied? Is there some unhealed relationship with their parents? Like, well, let me just ask, why would Kim Kardashian, and of course, it makes someone feel bad.
3: I think they would probably think that their I don't know that their body should look the same way on like a really base but, level.
1: But, but let me push that further. Why? Like why? You know, we know as, as adult thoughtful women that everybody's body looks different. Mm. So why is that a model for us? Right.
3: Yeah, I know. I guess it's just, I personally, it wouldn't make me feel bad because I don't, I don't really follow her or look at her, but I think, I think about younger girls, just seeing her as being this, the beauty standard that the world sees as being, people think of her as the most beautiful woman in the world. So I guess people would look to that and think I want to look that way and if I don't look that way then I'm less beautiful. And she's very like wealthy as well so if we live in a society that promotes like wealth
0: and status if people equate like this body shape with being a billionaire and uh, having 160 million people fawn over you you know it's like it seems like a gateway to status and wealth as well as the male gaze and romance and having four beautiful children like it's so tied up with so many other cultural obsessions that we have i think it's really hard
1: yeah i i hear what you're saying do you really know people who um who who think those thoughts who think like if i don't look like kim kardashian i'm i'm less than i see women of a (laughs) certain age who i think but I feel like you—you you
0: know, women yeah. who maybe we—they're not our friends, but yeah. from right. the way they behave online, right, right, right—they right. Yeah. must subscribe to that because they're—they're they're trying to emulate that aesthetic and that look, and they're getting like the Instagram face thing, where people are completely changing cosmetically the nature of their face to closer resemble a Kardashian face. It's like yeah. people are subscribing to it
1: yeah um, you're right. I think
0: it all just operates on like a very subliminal <laughs> level sometimes it's not an active thing
1: of mm. yeah do I, hear, as well. I hear what you're saying. I mean, I guess there I would say, and now we're getting very meta, but I would caution that we should be careful of assuming from imitation that we know what people's motives are for imitating, right because. Mm um sometimes it's just fashion it's just a trend you know that those those some of those women might think they're they're wonderful and they don't want to trade their lives for the kardashians but they like the lips or you know um like we we can't always know like a lot of brilliant subversive angry women in the 50s wore poodle skirts you know you 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 just can't know by looking at a woman what she's feeling so I would encourage, you know, definitely younger women to not get trapped in the hall of mirrors that's Instagram and social media, like to treat it as an art form and dip into it and dip out of it, but not treat it like a real world um, because they're in, you know, that way madness lies and depression. And I mean, there have been studies that show that if you get kind of sucked into that uh, addictive technology, it's designed to be addictive, um, you 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 do get depressed and you do get externalized. Um But all of these things, you know, point to the same in the same direction, which is it's a good idea to put down the phone and go on your quest, right? It's a good idea to feed yourself, love yourself, have adventures, make your, you know, make yourself interesting to yourself, make your life incredibly rich in the ways that you think that it should be rich, because then, you know, anyone can have that hollowness of of spirit where they look to other external ideals to to fill them, like religion used to do that before we became a secular society. So um, I don't think that women, the women I've met, even younger women, even if they're exposed to social media, if they have a fuck ton going on that they're excited about, they it, it, it's hard for them to get swept up into that um, hall of mirrors. We wanted to ask about
0: porn um, because it is a factor in uh, the beauty myth, but obviously since then the ubiquity of internet porn has just exploded and, um, you know, pleasure and shame are really interesting topics in terms of female sexuality. So I was just wondering if you have thought much or read much or wrote much about how the porn industry affects feminism.
1: Absolutely. Um, I wrote a chapter on pornography in my book, Vagina, uh, and it's, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot more pessimistic about porn than I am about the things we've just been discussing because pornography is ubiquitous. Um, I am a free speech absolutist, so I'm not going to say, you know, burn it. Uh, but it is a bad industry. It lives on trafficking and enslaving women often, and men and children as well. It's a very violent industry. And I guess the thing that Is true is that it's engineered to be very very addictive especially to the male brain um, but also addictive to the female brain and so what I looked at in in my chapter on porn in vagina is how being habituated to pornography which for men often means being addicted to pornography measurably like studies have shown makes men see their own partners as less attractive and less desirable. And then when they kind of wean themselves off of pornography, all this energy can go back into the relationship. And I do think like you were talking earlier about this insecurity that young women have looking at at images of sort of the perfect beauty, like Kim Kardashian ostensibly. Now I'm going to say when it comes to porn, you're absolutely right. I do think because so many young men have been raised on pornography they're addicted to pornography and young women know it, right? Even they may use pornography too, but it's like, I think there's a lot of um, unmet an unmet sense of connection in the sexual lives and romantic lives of, of young people who grew up on pornography. And so they absolutely a young woman would feel, if I look like the best porn, we might connect more fully you know, I might have his attention. And that is real. And that's heartbreaking. Um, and it's heartbreaking for any couple at any age. I mean, you know, there are, there are couples of all ages where, you know, the woman is aware that the man is addicted to pornography and it just creates so much alienation in the marriage uh, that there's no way to heal the marriage. It's, it's more destructive than, than adultery, you know, in a, in a lot of marriages. So, I think of it kind of as a public health thing and not a, a morality issue, but I think people should be informed um, how addictive and destructive to relationships and sexuality pornography can be. Another problem is that young men are having like um, erectile problems uh, that they never used to have um, even two generations ago uh, and premature ejaculation. And it's because of their habituation to pornography. They And they, another thing that's quite concerning is when you become habituated to pornography, especially if you're a man, the level of stimulation and ex- like extremeness has to get more and more intense to for you to have the same level of excitement. Um, so you're seeing things that used to be very fringe and violent, you know, moving into a very mainstream um, kind of porn stream, and again, that just creates more alienation where you know, often women feel like, how can I provide what that pornography is providing? You know, I can't do that or that'll kill me or I'm not into that, you know. Um, And again, it's just very lonely. It's just, it's, it's a technology that has driven a wedge between lovers. Uh, And I'm such a big fan of love and sexual love and sexual connection, you know, for people of any sexuality it's a source of power. It's a source of radicalism and courage. Um, it's the source of the kind of self-love that we were talking about that would lead a, a woman or a man to say, I don't care what ideals are, because I am wonderful, I'm beloved, my, my lover wants me. And yeah, pornography is definitely a technology that has, um, I think, is almost engineered to make it harder for people to uh, connect with each other and empower each other physically.
3: Mm. Um- we could talk to you literally forever, but I'm going to ask you a final question just on, um, you touched on it earlier, but men as part of the feminist movement. So obviously I think it's essential. We all know we need allies just as, you know, white people need to be allies in the, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, but we had a listener message just recently saying that she avidly identifies as a feminist, um, but then had a hard time explaining misogyny and gender inequality to her boyfriend. Um right. And, you know, he he really wanted to be involved and really wanted to help. But it's kind of, I think, as white people were grappling with how to help recently with Black Lives Matter and anti-racism resources, she wanted to know what a good starting point would be for better
1: equipping yourself for these conversations or to help educate the men in your life. I mean, that is such a good question. Um, I would say, you know, just like African-American people have rightly been telling white people go do your own reading. Don't Mm -hmm. make me explain it from, you know, kindergarten on. I think that she would be well advised to kind of give her boyfriend um, the feminine mystique and the female eunuch and the second sex. Like those three books kind of explain the, the basic problems of being female in a patriarch and, and let him read them, you know, and, and let him educate himself and and then have the conversation because Mm -hmm. it is exhausting. Otherwise you can't, as one person kind of represent the massiveness of the reality that is patriarchy um, or the complexity of what it means to be a woman in a patriarchal society by yourself. And if he's not going to read them, you know, he's not a real ally.
0: Yeah. Last thing we wanted to talk to you about actually before we go is your new book, which is available in Australia now. Uh, Can you please tell us a little bit about
1: Outrages? My book, Outrages, Sex Censorship and the Criminalization of Love, um, came out in Britain last May, but it was cancelled in the US. Um, I'd made a couple of errors in interpretation and the the whole book was canceled, which is unusual. Uh, But it's a really important story of a largely forgotten hero of the LGBTQ movement, uh, John Addington Simmons, and this incredible life he led in the 19th century in Britain to tell the truth about love. That's all he wanted to do with his voice, you know, to tell, to describe what he saw as the nobility of love between men specifically. Um, And he faced... Uh, you know, prison terms at hard labor, he faced self-exile, He his career was derailed, uh, and his he had a kind of love relationship with the poet Walt Whitman through letters that encouraged him um, to be braver than he otherwise would have been. And, he, you know, by the end of his life, he wrote what is probably the first gay rights manifesto in English. So it's a beautiful story. It's also the story of how the modern state invented modern censorship. And also, I think, kind of manipulated um, or kind of coined modern ideas of homophobia as a way to just lock down the state's control over people. You know, I I think that homophobia was kind of weaponized in the 19th century um, and and hystericized. Uh, And it's a really, really interesting story, especially relevant now, because I think what we're seeing right now is right-wing um, political consultants are trying to weaponize homophobia again in society after society in Brazil, in North America, in United Kingdom, to win elections. Um, and it's very cynical, uh, but it's happening. And so I encourage all of you, or I encourage you to tell your readers about Outrages because it's the first time that people will be able to read it in North America, coming out in a revival. Um, edition in by Chelsea.
3: Amazing. Green, yeah, I was reading LGBTQ. all about it. It looks so interesting. And so it's, it's all about like, the pioneers of the LGBTQ plus movement. Right.
1: And, the, and exactly. the feminist movement as well. Yeah, exactly. Specifically this one incredibly moving man, John Addington Simmons, who um, he just would not be silenced. Uh, and he encoded messages for the future in his secret memoirs uh, that are only now being kind of put together and they, it, it's just so extraordinary how he like knew someday he would have readers. He knew someday mm-hmm. that even though he could publish um, his poems about same sex love in his lifetime at risk of a prison sentence, he, he kind of wrote for the future and he knew that someday he would have an editor and he would have readers. And um, it's just an incredibly inspiring story of a, a hero um, who, who, whom all of us really need to need to know about a hero of the human rights movement in general
3: amazing thank you again so much for your thank time thank you again
1: yeah we thank really you. really appreciate it thank you and <laughs> I can't wait to think with everyone take care um thank you so yes. much for letting me thank, uh, you, part Naomi.
3: Of- bye. thank you Naomi
1: bye